Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. We interrupt this broadcast. Before it was history, it was news. It appears as though something has happened in the motor. I said, those are shots. Man on the moon. We copy it down, Eagle. I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. I'm Bill Curtis. It's been said that breaking news becomes the first draft of history. What's overlooked is how deeply we relied on broadcast journalists who met the adrenalized demands of those moments, often with courage and daring. Broadcast journalism has a simple, sober purpose, to keep the public informed through the best and worst of times. But the consequence of that labor is profound. As legendary newsman Walter Cronkite wrote, the free press is the central nervous system of a democratic society. No true democracy can exist without it. History has borne out that wisdom. But before it was history, it was news. I was horrified because it looked like a man was being beaten to death, frankly. It just went on and on and on. One policeman involved in the beating said, quote, I haven't beaten anyone this bad in a long time. I was scared for the city. People were in a state of shock. It's a powder keg and this is gonna light a fuse. Brace yourself for what's coming. I'm in the middle of a riot, and I just started doing a scener, and I was just started describing everything that was happening in front of me. Now they're pulling the driver out. They're kicking the driver and beating the driver. It was a war zone. And you just did not want to be out and about. I'm Brian Williams. 30 years before the death of George Floyd, there was someone else with a video camera who chose to record what he saw, not knowing it would someday make history, spark riots, and be seen around the world. On the night of March 3rd, 1991, a man named George Holliday saw a confrontation outside his apartment in Northeast LA, and he grabbed his new video camera. He, along with the rest of us, would later learn that what he recorded was the beating of a man named Rodney King by members of the LAPD. George Holliday's girlfriend slash wife bought him that camera as a Valentine's Day gift. Basically, he took it out of the box. He shot, I believe, six to eight seconds of his girlfriend wife with her daughter sitting on a couch. Hard cut. Rodney King beating. In 1991, Tony Fote was a video editor at KTLA-TV in Los Angeles. I was the crew chief for the editing. So big stories, feature stories, anything like that. I did the editing. That was my position. And get the early call. 
And what I had heard was that there was this guy who shot this video, and this was on a Monday morning. Now, apparently this tape was shot on a Saturday night into Sunday morning. And he had tried to take it to the LAPD and been turned away. This is what my recollection is. Then he called CNN and CNN on a Sunday in LA, there's basically nobody there. There's an intern answering a phone. He knew that he liked to watch KTLA news. And so he called. Our assignment editor, a woman named Frankie Sims, received a call on the desk from a guy who said, I took some video, shot some video the other night of a bunch of cops beating a guy. And I'm wondering if you want to see it. She said, well, come on in and bring the tape in and we'll take a look at it. Warren Saragino was the news director at KTLA. So he did as she instructed. And she then came into my office and said, come here, we have something you got to see. So she and I looked at it together along with the editor. And uh, pretty soon people were kind of gathering around watching it. I have covered so many stories in my lifetime prior to that. I mean, I even had to cover an execution one time. I've been pretty jaded. I'm pretty hard. So I thought to myself, you know, this is this is really something. Uh, you know, it, it, it obviously it's uh, it's very important. There were three other players of import in this on that first night. Stan Chambers was the reporter. Hal Fishman was the anchor and managing editor, and Jerry Rubin was the executive producer. We decided that it would not lead the newscast. It wouldn't be exploited. It would be not dramatized, not promoted. It would be part and parcel of the newscast because we had a very serious attitude about news. It, it, we, we considered ourselves a station of record, and we wanted this to be handled properly. I'm looking at it from the eye of an editor. Okay. And what an editor does is always takes out things, truncates in TV news, because our guy at the time, managing editor, was Hal Fishman, and he didn't like things more than a minute and a half long, period. Well, you have to do a lot of truncating and a lot of cutting to get things into that shape. When I'm looking at this, my job at that point is to be the best audience possible, the most curious, most involved and engaged audience. And the way that unfolded, I thought there's absolutely no way. There is no way that should be touched. People need to see that in real time, raw, the way it happened, as it happened. I had been in that newsroom for about 11 years at that point, 10 years. LAPD was not known to be the friendliest group of policemen, let's put it that way, under Daryl Gates. I took Stan Chambers aside and I said, Stan, first of all, tell me what elements we have to tell this story. I said, well, we have the tape, we have LAPD spokesperson and my stand-up. I said, you realize, Stan, there's no way to tell this story, cutting it up. We have to keep this all in one piece, front to back. So I said, here's the deal, Stan. From top 
to bottom, it's a minute and 38 seconds. What we should do, stand up open, the entire tape front to back, talk to the LAPD, get their side of it, and we're done. And that's what we did. That's exactly what we did. No editing. Gates wasn't available. Lieutenant Fred Nixon was on duty, and uh, he was African-American, and he gave us the interview about it. So we got the police department's official response there. Then we got George Holliday. Stan interviewed him also. What Holliday saw, looking out the window, hearing the commotion, going out with his camera and everything. So there was never any question in our mind that we would not run that. That was a news story, and it was it had been dropped in our lap. Dramatic videotape obtained by Channel 5 News shows what appears to be a group of LAPD officers beating a suspect. And once it hit the air, the uncensored broadcast, that raw video was just that, raw and difficult to watch. I saw it on Channel 5 uh, and I was horrified because it looked like a man was being beaten to death, frankly. Mark Coogan was a reporter for L.A. television station KABC. King would stagger to his feet. He'd be pummeled and beaten down again. I know he was resisting arrest, but it just went on and on and on. And I'd seen, you know, covering stuff. I'd seen the police beating people and tasing people, but not the sustained. It seemed like minutes were dragging by. And that was especially shocking. It just never stopped. Carl Stein was a video journalist for KCBS-TV in L.A. People were in a state of shock. You know, seeing something like that, trying to process what had happened, why it happened. Here you have something that maybe you've heard about, thought about, the reputation they had, but maybe you just see it before your eyes confirmed. It was really quite stunning. And the phones just lit up and everybody was calling. All the other stations were calling my people asking to get the, the tape. And we said, no, we paid a stringer fee for this. Uh, ultimately, we paid George Holiday. $500. The next day, again, the, the phones just heated up and everybody was calling Holiday and Holiday was saying, yeah, you can have a copy of it. But we were the ones who were in possession of the tape at that time. We did an interview with Holiday in order to establish ourselves as the quasi owner of the video since we had paid him the money or we were paying him the money well, far and above our stringer fee. But that all broke down because after a barrage of phone calls and, and CNN saying, you have to give us that tape because it's in our contract. And soon after that, and remember, this is well before there was something called social media, before there was even a word to describe the phenomenon, the Rodney King video went viral. Now, mind you, this was shot on Saturday. We aired it on Monday. Tuesday, it goes out into the ether, it was my understanding that KCRA, the Sacramento station, was an affiliate of NBC as well as had the same arrangement with CNN that we did. When they saw it, it was clean top to bottom. Everything was there. If you're smart, you could steal it, you grab it, you've got it. And that's what they did. They took it and honestly, George Holliday has never forgiven the media for not giving him his due. But I will tell you that KCRA then took it from CNN and 
the ones who really splattered it out to the nation was NBC News. Then there came a pivotal moment covered on live television when Rodney King, still bearing the visible wounds from his ordeal, went before the news media. Do you have any idea at all how many times you were hit by a club? What do you remember about that aspect Several of it? Several times. Several times. And then stomped and kicked. What is that from? That's from um, uh, some kind of device that they use. They um, shocked me. They got a big kick out of that. What makes you say they got a kick out of him? Because of how long they left it in me. It was like they had a little toy and they wanted to see how it worked. One of the two officers who wielded batons that evening relayed a message after the arrest to another car, saying, quote, it was right out of gorillas in the mist. One policeman involved in the beating said, quote, I haven't beaten anyone this bad in a long time. The video absolutely seared in people's, you know, minds and uh, so much discussion about it. So you couldn't help but uh, think that, uh, you know, it's a powder keg and this is going to light a fuse. It's just, you know, brace yourself for what's coming. Fast forward 14 months, four police officers were standing trial on two counts for the King beating for assault and excessive force. But their defense lawyers had successfully filed for a change of venue, moving the trial from L.A. out to Simi Valley, a suburb in nearby Ventura County. That put the case before an almost entirely white jury. Their verdict was rendered on April 29, 1992. One split decision, seven verdicts of not guilty. KABC's Mark Coogan picks up the story. The day of the verdict, I was at the courthouse in Simi Valley. I didn't cover the trial, but they needed somebody outside to cover what was happening, protests, that sort of thing. And so that's where I was when the verdict was read. And everybody was gathered around the television trucks outside the courthouse to watch the monitors and see what happened. And people were shocked. And protesters started yelling. There weren't many, though. There weren't a lot of people out there in the Simi Valley. One of the persons who did show up was John Singleton, the movie director. He comes in, and everybody rushes over to him with cameras, and he said, I think there's going to be a riot. About that time, the police were ushered out the back way. They left. They went home. And what few demonstrators there were drifted away. Now, the station kept me out there at Simi Valley because ABC has a feed service for their affiliates called News One. And they needed a reporter to do live shots for News One on the hour and a half hour, and that was me. So I stayed there, and they would produce things, put things together, and I would voice them. But slowly, as the day went on, they began telling me through the earphone, hey, guys, it's really bad downtown. We'll have to throw in some new stuff and they kept telling me what they were using you know fires and helicopter shots of people being beaten up that sort of thing and that's when it dawned on me that was really awful carl stein for kcbs tv in la the assignment desk had you know assigned crews to different parts of, of town and in my crew we were down in South L.A., South Central, along Crenshaw near MLK Boulevard in a local barbershop. Our folks had called in advance to get permission, and 
told them what we wanted to do, you know, if they were going to be, if they had a TV and if they were going to watch the verdict and so forth. And they said yes. And they said it was fine. So uh, this little tiny barbershop with maybe four seats, you were in there with, I don't know, six patrons and, and this little black and white TV hanging from the ceiling. And here's the feed from the trial. And, uh, you know, the verdict is read. And I'm rolling on this whole thing. I'm the guy with the camera. And one of the dudes in the barber chair looks at me and says, uh, you best get your white ass out of here. And with that, I looked at my other crew dude, uh, Vic, and I said, let's go. David Borman is the former executive producer of ABC's World News Now. L.A. was erupting. The way World News Now was broken out, it was... It was a very odd feed pattern, but fundamentally at heart, there were 14 half hours of television in World News Now. Aaron Brown and Lisa McCree were the anchors of the program. And we did all 14 half hours live on ABC News. Bob Brill, anchor at KNX News Radio in Los Angeles, was covering the riots as a stringer reporter for NBC Radio. When the verdict came down where everybody was watching it on television of course and uh, i jumped in my car stopped at the atm uh to get 20 bucks because i knew it was gonna be a long night figured i'd have to get some burgers or something along the way so i jumped in my car and headed toward south la my assignment was to go to the first ame church because that's where chief gates was going to be mayor bradley was going to be the pastor of the most influential black church in the community that's where they were going to be. They're going to be there to call for calm. Well, after I hung up, I was listening to KFWB radio, and which is, was all news, one of the two all news stations, KNX being the other where I worked out. And Pete Demetrio, who's a very good friend of mine, was a correspondent, was at a live scene and he was reporting. And he said the word flashpoint. And what he said was if there's going to be a flashpoint, it's going to be Florence and Normandy. So I called the desk back and I said, look, I think that's where I need to be. You're going to get all you want out of First AME Church. You're going to have a live feed out of there. So, and, you know, I, the action's not going to be there. The action is going to be in Florence and Normandy. I want everybody out of here. Florence and Normandy. Everybody, get out now. Everyone out of the area of Florence and Normandy. Well, when I got there, I assumed that I would see yellow police tape and I would, as normal, get behind the yellow police tape, find a command post, and, uh, you know, everything would be good. I'd cover the story. Well, what happened was I got there before the police did on my side of the intersection. What had happened on the other side of the intersection was the cops had fled. And I actually saw the cars when I got there leaving the area because there was a confrontation and all police had been ordered out of the area. We'll continue our story in a moment. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. 
Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. I'm Brian Williams. Welcome back. You're listening to We Interrupt This Broadcast. Carl Stein for KCBS-TV in L.A. There was stuff going on at, you know, Florence and in Normandy and the desk had called us and says start heading south through the area and, and see what kind of reaction you might come across. I came upon an intersection I looked up north and there was a liquor store in the corner and they're already starting to you know loot the place and they're running out with anything they could hold in their hands and it was crazy and then um, then I realized they see me and then part of the crowd starts running south towards me. And I said to myself, all right, I'll give it a couple beats of video, and then we got to get out of here. So here's this crowd coming at me, and I turn tail, and I'm yelling at, you know, Vic and the reporter I was with, let's go, you know, let's go. Let's get the heck out of here. And uh, so jump back in the van, and no sooner than I slide the door in the back close than the mob is on us. Bricks are flying through the window. Glass is breaking. And I'm like freaked out saying, we're going to die. We're freaking going to die. And I'm just screaming at Vic, let's get the hell out of here. And it was chaos. It was frightening. And remember, I I don't think the verdict was barely freaking an hour old. And we're already under full attack in the hood. Rocks, bricks. It it was was just just craziness. And an act of self-defense, I put the camera up in front of my face and blocked one brick from hitting me in the face with my lens. Meanwhile, another one, it struck my leg, and I could feel blood rushing down my leg. And, you know, the jeans were covered in blood. And, you know, like for me, the riot was on, you know. Fortunately, uh, you know, we escaped. All five windows of the van had been blasted out. You know, there was glass all over the floor of the van. The other guys with me were really visibly shaken. And, uh, you know, Vic was driving and asked me, where are we going to stop? And I said, don't stop. I don't care. Run every stop line, run every light. Just get us the heck out of here till we find a safe zone. And that was just the beginning of what turned out to be a very long evening. Yes, and at the, at the risk of uh, some naivete, are the television cameras making these people do some of these things? No, because the TV cameras were in the other direction. Remember, we were on the other side when this started. Bob Brill, KNX News Radio in Los Angeles. So I looked around, I got my equipment out, which was consisted basically of my tape recorder and my microphone and cord, and went to uh, a stand-up payphone. And it was one of those stand-up payphones. It wasn't a, a booth. It wasn't a Superman booth. There was a stand-up payphone sort of protected. And it was up against a chain link fence on the street. And so I went there and I immediately called the desk. And um, 
I Bob Jones answered, who I do from UPI. He moved over to uh, NBC and he answered the phone and I said, start rolling tape. I'm in the middle of a riot. And he said, okay. So he started rolling tape and I just started doing a scener and I was just started describing everything that was happening in front of me. And about halfway through that, I was there probably eh, about 18 minutes, I guess, total. About halfway through that, Reginald Denny's vehicle pulled into the intersection. And he eventually ended up being pulled out of the cab. Now they're pulling the driver out. They're kicking the driver and beating the driver. Terrible, terrible pictures. He was on his knees and he had very long hair and it was covered with blood. Damien Williams beating the crap out of him. And, uh, you know, he was just bloodied. And I literally could not tell if he was a man or a woman. That's how bloodied and messed up he was because uh, his hair was down to, you know, shoulder length and, and everything. And uh, I was describing him. The man is up now. His clothes are torn. He's still bleeding all over the place. He's trying to get back into his truck. He is getting back into his truck. It's a transit, transit mixed truck. And he's white. He's trying to get out, trying to drive through this intersection now. I hope he has enough power to, on his own, to get out of the area. And about, oh, probably about six or seven minutes before I was getting ready to leave, because I had made a decision to consciously leave. About that time, uh, and people were running back and forth in front of me, carrying cases of beer. And one guy yelled out, I've got a TV set. And, and this guy walked by me, a black guy walked by me. Nicely dressed, looked like I had a Hawaiian shirt on and, and slacks. And he looked at me and he said, what the hell are you doing here? And I probably looked like a cop. And I was behind this phone booth describing everything. So, you know, I, I probably did look like an observer uh, for the police or whatever. And even though I wasn't. And anyway, so this guy asked me what the hell I was doing there. And I stepped from behind the booth and said, I'm a news reporter. And now I see smoke, something. And I'm just doing my job out here. And he looked past me to something behind me. And thank God I wasn't as quick as I used to be. Because if I had, with noticing him looking past me, if I had turned to look at what was coming behind me, I would have got that full 64 uh, ounce beer bottle in the face instead of on the side of my head. And then whoever it was either started punching me or kicking me. I don't know which, because first thing I did, had the good sense to cover my mouth, knowing that I was a radio reporter and my mouth is pretty important. So I covered my mouth and locked my fingers and uh, that's where the blows were going. So I saved my mouth and part of my face, uh, of course, but my thumb was shattered. My eardrum was punctured. I had cuts and scrapes and bruises and my head was kind of um, hit pretty hard. And uh, I still have pain in that part of my my neck and uh, shoulder to this day. But you can hear me on the, the, the audio tape. Uh, stop, stop, stop. Okay, okay, okay. And it just stopped. Uh, whoever it was just stopped. They stole my tape recorder. They stole my microphone. I got up. I first thing I did was I grabbed the, the, the phone, which was phone receiver was hanging down. And I uh, said to Bob Jones on the other end, I said, did you get that? 
And he said, yeah, yeah, get that, get the hell out of there. Get out of there. And I said, okay. And so I started going back to my car, which was probably about 20 feet away. And another guy, uh, and I don't know if it was the same guy beat me up or not, because I never did see the person. So I couldn't tell you who it was to this day. Came up to me, he says, I want your wallet. And I said, I'm sorry, I'm not going to give it to you. And he said, I want your wallet. And I remembered I had the 20 bucks in my pocket. So I took the 20 bucks out and I gave it to him. He says, I'll take that. I want your wallet, MF. And um, he continued on. And I just continued to ignore him while watching him. And I wasn't sure I was even going to get the car door open. Got in and a crowd started coming around the car and got it going, jammed out of there. And sure enough, as soon as I did, the uh, front windshield was covered with beer because people were throwing rocks and bottles. And fortunately, I was in motion, so they hit more of the, the top rim instead of the glass. But the right rear window just exploded because the guy who had demanded my money and my wallet had picked up a small piece of concrete and wound up like a pitcher and just threw it and hit the back right rear window solid, just explode. I still have the rock to this day. Mark Coogan for L.A. television station KABC. Stefan and I were told, get out, go down and see what you can get. And so we start driving south into south central Los Angeles and there are fires everywhere. You can see big plumes of smoke going up in the distance. Stores are being looted. We were a two-man band. There was me driving and Stefan shooting the camera out the window. And we're in a big blue truck with a Circle 7 on the side, like a target circle. We pulled into a gas station at uh, Vermont and Santa Monica Boulevard. Across the street is a Payless shoe store that looked like a melted candle. It had been burned to the ground, but you didn't see like the charred embers and, and beams or anything. It was just like the whole thing melted, like it was plastic. About that time, a homeless woman came up to the window and said, what are you going to do about them? And she points. And I looked, and there was a swap meet building, big building intact. And on the roof were about 10 Korean men with long guns. And it was the first time I'd seen what became an, a riot phenomenon, Koreans defending their businesses. That business was intact. And like I say, right across the street from it was this melted candle of a shoe store. There was another sequence where a reporter named Linda Moore was on live down in Koreatown in front of a jewelry store in a mini mall. And she's just talking about the scene in general. And all of a sudden, erupting out of the jewelry store come about four or five Korean men with handguns. Are you live? Some of the Korean shop owners here, they start pulling out weapons. Koreans here. Seems like somebody's been shot. Someone's been shot in the car. They turn and level the guns and open fire. And they're just cranking off shots and not warning shots. These are level at somebody's way off camera. We don't know who. Seeing this on live TV, or originally it was on live TV, was really something. I mean, here was real out and out violence going on that uh, I don't know who was at the other end of the shots, but believe me, the shots weren't in the air. They were like five feet off the ground. This is helicopter to desk, helicopter to desk. Can you read me? There were three fires in Hollywood. That fire was one of three fires uh, easily uh, beyond the Watson-Compton area. Clearly, the fires are spreading. The whole city is up in flames. We are getting reports of looting all over Los Angeles and also surrounding areas. The next day, I was back there early. 
you know, maybe 6 a.m. And uh, I didn't walk in the station. I saw a friend of mine, uh, Les Rose, walking out. He's also a photographer. And I grabbed him. I said, you and me are going together today. So we geared up and we went straight back down into the thick of it. We worked all day long. And I mean, my gosh, looking south from Hollywood, leaving the station, you can see smoke and fires all the way down South Central LA. And, uh, you know, if you're looking for trouble, you could easily find it. And we did. And later on, when, you know, at the end of the day, when we finally dragged ourselves back, we would see some other crew folks. And they were all upset with us because what we had to offer visually on the end of the camera, I guess, was so compelling that they just kept us live freaking all day long. And no matter where we went, as soon as we were up, we were on the air. And it was, you know, one of my proudest, you know, moments is the, or achievements of the day is that the fact that, you know, everywhere we went, despite whatever challenges were presented, we made it happen. People, I just want to say, can we all get along? Can we stop making it horrible for, for the older people and the, and the kids? I mean, we've got enough smog here in Los Angeles, let alone to uh, deal with the uh, setting these fires. And it's just not right. And it's not going to change anything. We've got to quit. After all, I mean, I can understand the upset for the first two hours after the verdict. But to see the security guard shot on the ground, it's just not right. Because those people will never go home to their families again. Please, we can get along here. We're all stuck here for a while. Let's, Let's try and work it out. The Los Angeles riots went on for four days and claimed 63 lives, nearly 2,400 injuries, and over a billion dollars in property damage. In its aftermath, Los Angeles Police Chief Daryl Gates resigned, and a commission was set up to reform standards of LAPD conduct. Two of the officers acquitted at trial were ultimately convicted in federal court and sentenced to 30 months in prison. Rodney King received a $3.8 million settlement from the city. He died in 2012. George Holliday's video camera was later sold at auction. You have to have a degree of restraint to go into a story to tell it in its raw form. I knew in my heart of hearts, the best thing to show people is exactly what happened, how it happened. This story tells itself. I was just lucky that everything I had was there in a minute and 38 seconds. You give me a minute 38 of amazing video, video that transfixes your imagination. If they had chosen to hand it off to LAPD, you know, where they just got buried, I think it was a courageous act and to be able to give, you know, some credence in, uh, to all the discussion regarding LAPD and its uh, uh, use of force and how they chose to operate with the, you know, and interact with the community. We ended up suing LAPD in the city of LA, basically for the rights of journalists, because, you know, I always said that, you know, it says on the side of their cars to protect and serve. Well, they weren't there to protect and serve anybody at the time. They fled. They were ordered out. And that left everybody in the neighborhood, that which included me. And I was an outsider in the neighborhood, but it left everybody in that neighborhood 
in danger, exposed. At that point, you couldn't blame people too much for being jubilant about doing what they were doing because they had not received justice. I mean, these cops were acquitted and this was their strike back at the LAPD and that was their victory. Sadly, it wasn't the last. In fact, it was one of the first to um, really be available to underscore the reality that many Americans were oblivious to. You know, like how television figured itself out and figured out its potential and its power. The reality of having something on videotape that people were in denial about sort of it could not happen here was shattering to some, but revelatory to others. And it was important to have done. I don't think that the the KTLA news director had a choice. I think he made the right one. And I think I would have made the same decision to broadcast that tape. We could not know back then that someday virtually every American would have a camera with them at all times. We had no way of knowing that something called social media would, in a way, deputize every citizen to feel compelled to say something if they see something. And that in the modern era, the dissemination of raw video of a shocking incident recorded by ordinary citizens would someday be the norm and not the exception. Obviously, it's encouraged people to always use the video that is presented to them. And in this day and age, it is so different from what we dealt with back then. This was a this was a guy with a new toy who saw something to take pictures of. I can't imagine anybody holding back video like that. I didn't then have need anybody telling me that was fake news because it wasn't. You know, it was not a staged activity, and it was real. And I do think that people following in our footsteps have always uh, known that this is what they should do. I, I don't think anybody else would have made any different decision than we did. I'm Brian Williams. For more information about this episode and our series, please visit our website, weinterruptthisbroadcast.org. Now, please listen to this special message from Bill Curtis about the great work of the Broadcasters Foundation of America. Every day, broadcasters bring us the information and entertainment that enriches our lives and often saves lives. It's not only the person on air. It's the producers, engineers, management, sales, marketers, camera operators, and more. For more than 70 years, the Broadcasters Foundation of America, a 501c3 charity, has been a safety net, providing financial assistance to broadcasters and their families in acute need from a debilitating illness, tragic accident, or unthinkable catastrophe. Whether a retired broadcaster who can't afford life-saving medications, a family struggling to make ends meet after a crippling accident, or severe damage from a hurricane to the home of a broadcaster in need, the Broadcasters Foundation has always been there to help those in our industry who need it most. Now more than ever, the Broadcasters Foundation is in need of your donations to continue its charitable mission. Please consider a donation today at broadcastersfoundation.org. That's broadcastersfoundation.org. On behalf of all our broadcasters, 
in all areas of our industry. We thank you.